Hello and welcome to the fourth podcast for English 264 Online. In this episode, I'll be talking about William Blake. Blake is usually considered the first of the major romantic poets, although uh, I'll modify that statement by saying that he was not considered that during his lifetime, uh, in part because nobody used the term romantics for the writers. They didn't all consider themselves romantics or doing the same sort of thing. Uh, that term was applied to them much later, after most of them were dead, uh, in the middle of the 19th century. Also, he was not recognized as a major figure in any way during his lifetime. Uh, he was relatively obscure. Uh, those who knew him knew him primarily for his artwork as opposed to for his writings. Those who did know his writings, to some extent, tended to dismiss him uh, often as a, um, as a madman. It's only in the 20th century that he was considered uh, a foundational figure in the Romantic movement. But it is the case that many of the traits we associate with romantics are also present in his work. He was a, a complete original as an artist in the sense that he had no formal education, uh, in part because of his background. He was born in London. His father was a, a hosier. He made stockings and socks. Um, because of these lower middle class origins, he would not have had access to education, a formal education, certainly would not have had access to Oxford or Cambridge University. And so the education he did receive would be typical for someone of his social class, uh, which is uh, apprenticeship. Uh, as a child, he showed a great deal of talent in art, um, but rather than sending him to art school, to the uh, Royal Academy of Art, uh, again, because of his social class, he was not, uh, did not have access to that. He was apprenticed to an engraver where he was taught how to engrave illustrations, uh, how to um, often do illustrations for, uh, or copies of other people's works, other painters, and also do, do illustrations for books. And he incorporated this training into his own productions. Um, it's important to, cons to note as you're reading the, the assignments in Blake um, that he did not present these poems as you see them on the page here always published his works with a combination of art and word together, of image and word. Um, there's a color plate in the section of anthology with the, uh, which has a number of his paint, uh, paintings and poems. Um, also in the section of Blake, the reading assignment for today, you have black and white reproductions of them. I would highly recommend that you use the resource links from our webpage, go to the Blake archive, and you can see much more extensive color illustrations of all of his poems and the readings for today. Despite his self-training, uh, or perhaps because of it, Blake tended to um, the philosophical in his writings. He had a sophisticated philosophical underpinnings for his works, although that system was um, eccentric, uh, idiosyncratic, uh, unorthodox, and perhaps hard to follow sometimes. Um, look, for example, at the, the first reading assignment, All Religions Are One, one of his pamphlets that he produced. In this work, he argues uh, um, an idea of human nature that's very, very romantic. Uh, that is, that man is not uh, essentially a worm, uh, an animal, unless he makes himself into one. He writes that the true man is the poetic genius. And by this, he implies that the poet is not an aberration, but the norm from which the majority have fallen away due to the fall of Adam and Eve, which he sees as repeated in every individual, uh, his emphasis on uh, innocence and experience in the, the songs of innocence and of experience, his emphasis on the fall in the marriage of heaven and hell, all of these uh, stem from his idea of, of human nature 
what he sees as a, as a continual process for most people of um, putting on blinders, of losing their connection with the infinite, of losing their connection with God and with the God in themselves. He sees the poetic genius as, re as revealed by the ability to see through or, or past this finite world, this fallen nature of the senses into the infinite world of truth, uh, of the imagination. And so all, over and over again in his writings, you get a contrast or a tension between what the imagination can reveal and what the senses can obscure. And, and in writing this, he's uh, specifically in a, uh, a line of thought refuting most 18th century philosophical understanding, uh, such as John Locke's um, idea of the blank slate or the, the tabula rasa, in which uh, people are born a blank slate their experiences right on that slate, uh, experiences as uh, filtered through their five senses. Uh, and for the 18th century paradigm of the mind, this empirical view, this rational understanding, uh, interpretation of the sense data is what the human mind is supposed to do. For the Romantics, there's often a rejection of that as being insufficient, and Blake in particular tends to do so. For example, on page 77, in the uh, All Religions Are One pamphlet, Principle 4 says, As none by traveling over known lands can find out the unknown, so from already acquired knowledge man could not acquire more. Therefore, an universal poetic genius exists. Now, whether his logic is clear to us or not, his argument seems to be that the five senses can only repeat the same input over and over again and can produce no new idea. Um, the fact that new ideas exist, the fact that there are creative, imaginative minds which have changed the, the, uh, the perception of the world through their ideas, uh, and they were the first to come up with this perception, um, indicates that this poetic genius, that this imagination does exist and gives it primary place for him as far as the, uh, the faculties of the mind. Blake is perhaps most accessible through his lyrical poetry in the Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Um, although these may seem to be simple poems, they're certainly not simplistic, and I wanted to point out a couple of uh, themes and issues in them which can help complicate them. Um, some background, uh, as you saw from your reading, uh, he published the Songs of Innocence in 1789, and then in 1794 he published, published the Songs of Experience. And it, it's certainly natural for a re reader to wonder what happened to him in between. How did he go from uh, writing these happy innocent poems, uh, and then five years later uh, writing these very dark and pessimistic poems. And if you were a Freudian, um, you might wonder if there was some trauma in between those points, if there was some incident which led him to be disillusioned. Um, if you were an historical critic, you might observe that the fall of the Bastille occurred in 1789, the reign of terror in France was underway by 1794, and perhaps this reflected disillusionment with, um, with France, with the ideals of liberty. Uh, I'll caution you against these easy answers because I don't think they, they hold up. Um, for instance, some of the songs of innocence um, eventually were changed into songs of experience. He wrote some of the songs of experience while he was also writing songs of innocence. Um, the All Religions Are One pamphlet and some other publications at that time indicate that he had a much more complex view of, of human nature than the Songs of Innocence might suggest. So I, 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 there's not an easy answer, um, but as usual, easy answers wouldn't be sufficient. Um, I do want to start with the, the uh, two poems, The Lamb and the Tiger. Um, 
in part because they're they're paired, um, they refer to each other, they they're also perhaps the best embodiments of the innocent perspective and the experienced pr perspective. The lamb uh, occurs on page 79, and you also have an illustration of it on page 80. In order to keep the podcasts somewhat more concise, I'll refrain from reading it out loud to you, um, but I, I will point out that you might want to read it out loud. Uh, poetry is read out loud, um, is written to be read out loud, and it does make a difference in terms of the sound and the sense. But in this poem, um, you get a vision of, of Mankind and nature and God um, in a very uh, unified and benevolent and peaceful and, um, and pleasant view. So that um, the lamb, which is also an image of God, the child, also an image of God, you get the, the basic theological view here is of the Agnes Dei, the lamb of God, uh, the baby Jesus. And from looking at the lamb as an embodiment of nature, as a type of nature, a type of God's creation, you get a very positive view of God. Um, and note that the poem is constructed like a catechism, um, like a, a question and answer that you would have, that a child would have as part of religious instruction at that time. Um, little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Uh, so the purpose of the poem is to, uh, not to train sheep in theological uh, concepts, but to reinforce uh, questions and answers. Here's the question and here's the, the answer. The tiger, on the other hand, takes a very different animal as an image of nature and therefore produces a very different in image of God. Uh, in the tiger you have 13 questions uh, repeated and at the end of the, of the poem the question cycle is beginning again and the issue seems to be what sort of God creates tigers? Is it the same God who created the lamb? Uh, the, all the imagery of creation that you get here is not uh, of meadows and pastoral um, softest clothing, woolly bright, and, and all of the, making the veils rejoice, and all of the ish, um, elements that accompany the lamb. Uh, but instead you have images of darkness, of um, images of God as a blacksmith, uh, creating this tiger out of, uh, on an anvil with a hammer, with wires and sinews. And you get a much more dangerous image of nature, and a much more dangerous image of God. The key question, I think, in this poem, did he who made the lamb make thee? And note that there's no answer to this question in the poem. At this point, the cycle starts all over again. And that's, I think, because there is no answer to that question that's going to be comforting. If the answer is no, the, the God who made the lamb did not make the tiger, then there's the question then of, well, who did? Is there some diabolical, some dark force, some, some uh, evil God creating tigers, as opposed to the benevolent God creating lambs? Or, if the answer is yes, the same God made both, then that raises unsettling questions about the nature of God, uh, about God's purpose of why create tigers, which can eat people, and not just lambs? You might then characterize the innocence point of view, the, the state of mind or the, um, the aspect of the soul, as the subtitle of the Songs of Innocence and of Experience points out. The innocent perspective is one of certainty, of assurance, of comfort, of optimism, of hope, whereas the perspective of experience tends to be anguished and questioning, uncertain, um, of doubt and, or even despair. And you see this in a number of places throughout the poem. Um, that is not to, to say, on the other hand, that all of the Songs of Innocence are about innocent subject matter. Um, for example, uh, one contrast you should make or pay attention to is The Chimney Sweeper. Uh, there's two poems entitled The Chimney Sweeper, one in each of the sections. And 
you might have in mind the uh, the happy-go-lucky chimney sweeps from Mary Poppins, the the chim chim cheree chimney sweeps. Um, this is not what these poems are about. And one difference is by 1910, which is when Mary Poppins is set, um, chimney sweeps had uh, technology which enabled them to sweep out chimneys from from standing down in the living room. Um, you had the telescoping poles which enabled them to to brush out the the creosote, the, the buildup in the chimneys. Um, you didn't have that in the 1790s or for many decades after that. In terms of an economical supply and demand issue, the situation was you had London, a city of a million people with a million chimneys. You needed, um, they, you burned soft coal for your heat in, in a particularly cold and, and, and dim climate. You needed to um, get the, the buildup out of the chimney or else it's a fire hazard and London had already burned down in the previous century. Uh, chimneys are small, um, Children are small, and so what they would do is uh, chimney sweep masters would generally go to the poorest families, would buy the children from them uh, under the guise of apprenticeship, would strap brushes to the children's knees and elbows and send them up chimneys. Uh, and some children as young as six or seven were, were entered into this life. And it was, a, it was an awful life. It generally, um, you know, we would see as, as widespread and, and institutionalized abuse of children. Many of them died young, either from suffocation or fire or, or um, falling um, or black lung disease or can various cancers from all the contact with the, with the, the sooty materials. Um, so it was a bad life. And in 1788, uh, 1787, uh, Parliament had passed a law to try to correct some of these abuses. Um, it forbid um, chimney sweeps from being younger than, than eight. Uh, it forbids sending them up lighting ch lighted chimneys. Uh, it required them to get a bath once a week. But there was only one inspector for the entire British Isles to make sure this law was followed, and so in effect it was not followed. So in The Chimney Sweeper and the Songs of Innocence, um, you get um, the chimney sweeper's dream, um, where Tom dreams that all of the chimney sweeps have an angel who comes to them, um, unlocks the coffins of black, which are probably their, their chimneys that they work in, and they go outside and play in a meadow, and they're clean, and they're, they're happy, and they're playing, they're having what would be a normal childhood experience. This is only a dream. The implication is that they'll get this when they die. And the end of the poem has the, the message, uh, so if all do their duty, they need not fear harm, which is the sort of message that, that tends not to better the life of the chimney sweeps, but to make them more pliable, to, to keep them from, from raising a fuss about it. Uh, and I don't think the reader is supposed to, to calmly accept that line at the end of the poem. Blake tends to use a lot of irony in his writing. The danger of irony is you don't necessarily know when he's being ironic. But I, I think the reader is supposed to be uncomfortable with the idea that it's the duty of a ten-year-old to go up a chimney so that other people can be more comfortable. On page 89, you have the contrasting or the accompanying poem, uh, The Chimney Sweeper from Songs of Experience. Uh, and here, it's much more manifest, the unhappiness of the chimney sweep um, and uh, his bitterness with the system that creates this life for him. Um, and he, he particularly accuses all of the uh, forces of authority for putting him in this situation. He, he writes, uh, or he says, And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury, and are, they, his parents, who have sold him to a chimney sweep master and are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. Uh, and so you get a very 
subversive, very radical message uh, appropriately, since Blake was friends with Wollstonecraft and Paine, uh, with many of the revolutionaries in, in England at this time, um, that church and state and parental authority, all the forces of hierarchical authority, are responsible for the abuse of the vulnerable, for the weak in society. Um, in the readings for uh, on the rights of man controversy, um, the, uh, the Friend of Humanity and the Knife Grinder, or, or the poem by Robert Southey, then uh, the Sapphic Ode, um, you get the same sense that the weak and powerless um, are the victims of those in power, those with wealth. Um, and, and again, this is characteristic of the Romantics at that time. While it's tempting to think that the, that the state of innocence is good and the state of experience is bad, um, I don't think that's the case, that, that sort of neat package. Uh, in fact, any impulse you might have to try to, to make a neat system or package for Blake um, is probably a bad impulse, and you should probably beware of that, because Blake tends to make things much more complicated than that. In these poems, um, I don't think it's the case that either the voice of innocence or the voice of experience is the right answer. Uh, they're contrary states, um, but neither of them is sufficient. Um, innocence by itself can be naive and, and can be uh, taken in, um, can fall for the, the duty line. On the other hand, experience by itself can be too anguished and too, um, too pessimistic to actually produce any, any, any change or any end. Uh, it's the tension between these two that's perhaps significant for him. In The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, one line is, without contraries is no progression. And I think there's this sense that you need both innocence and experience uh, at various stages at various times to, to produce any, any change in any, any positive steps. In some ways, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell is more characteristic of, of much of Blake's later work, uh, his so-called prophetic works. And it's, believe it or not, the most accessible and understandable of those prophetic works. But it, it's nevertheless still fairly confusing, and you might have had some difficulty reading it and figuring out what you're supposed to make of it. Um, that's okay, because I've read it you know, 25, 30 times, and I still have difficulty trying to figure out all parts of it. Um, what I'll try to do in this podcast is mention a couple of angles you might perceive um, but I'm by no means going to say I'm a Blake expert or the authority who will tell you what everything in Blake means. What the marriage of heaven and hell reports to be, or purports to be, is the voice of the devil, presenting a diabolical view of religion, of human nature, um, but it's more complicated than that, as you might expect from Blake, in that the angels are not what they seem. They're not true goodness, but self-righteousness, um, the so-called angels, the self-appointed angels, the proponents of limiting, of oppressive earthly religion. Uh, in the Songs of Experience poem, The Garden of Love, the angels are the priests in black gowns, walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. And um, by extension, the devils in this poem are not true evil, but what the self-appointed pharisaical angels would call so. They represent energy and individuality and sexuality, imagination. Um, so what Blake tends to do here in this work is follow an extended satiric point of view. Um, the the so-called devils say, well, if you call us devils, so be it. Here's what devils say. And it's perhaps even more complicated than that, because it isn't the case that the angels are wrong and the devils are right, but again, like with the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, without contraries, there is no true progression. The devils and angels are, are both necessary to each other, but they don't realize it. They, they tend to, the, the angels have demonized the devils.
perhaps the most uh, accessible place to begin with the songs of with the uh, marriage of heaven and hell uh, is in the, the proverbs of hell section which tends to uh, convey infernal wisdom or, or so-called infernal wisdom and although it's not in the the section of this work called the proverbs of hell uh, it is in fact one and i wanted to begin with the last line of the entire prophetic work on page uh, 107 in our book the line is or the proverb is, one law for the lion and ox is oppression. And note the infernal wisdom of this particular statement, uh, as opposed to the Old Testament prophetic statement that one day the lion will lie down with the lamb and eat straw like the ox, you get the idea that lions and oxen are, are different and should remain different, that it is oppressive to try to turn the lion into, into an ox or vice versa. Um, and you ha the the choice of animals, I think, is significant in that in the ox, you have a domesticated animal, uh, an artificial animal in a sense. The way you make an ox is to castrate a bull uh, to make it docile and it's, it's strong but can be easily led and, and can pull your plow for you, whereas a bull wouldn't do that. Um, even more so, a, a lion wouldn't do that. Um, the ox eats straw, the, the lion eats meat. Um, you couldn't send an ox out to run down an antelope to catch its food. So there are two different natures of animals. And throughout many of the Proverbs of Hell, you get the sense that, um, that these different natures are significant. Um, for, example, for example, you get proverbial express in expressions such as um, the best wine is the oldest, the best water is the newest, or the crow wished everything was black, the owl that everything was white. Uh, the apple tree never asks the beech tree how he shall grow, nor the lion the horse how he shall take his prey. The fool sees not the same tree that a wise man sees. Many of these uh, proverbs seem to emphasize this dip, uh, the sense of separation of different natures. Um, the prolific and the devourer, uh, he also refers to them as in this work. Or uh, perhaps the, um, the proverb that best sums it up, the cistern contains the fountain overflows. Uh, the purpose of the fountain is to overflow with water, but if it overflows and there's no resource, then the fountain dries up. The purpose of the cistern is to uh, catch the excess and store it, but if it, no new water goes into it, then it becomes stagnant. And so, um, again, the idea of contraries um, providing progression or, or true friendship, uh, the sense that you need, that the cistern needs the fountain and the fountain needs the cistern. The, pro the prolific needs the devourer, and vice versa. So note that in this work, it's not uh, the replacement of heaven by hell. Uh, it's the marriage of heaven and hell, a, a unifying of two opposites, uh, bringing together and from the, the, the built-in tension of those two parts, um, something newer being possible that was not possible before. Also extremely important to Blake is the sense of perception. Uh, again, the proverb, a fool sees not the same tree that a wise man sees emphasizes that it's not the tree that changes, it's the perception of the person who looks at it. Um, and one of the, one of the uh, again, one of the proverbial expressions, not part of the Proverbs of Hell, on page 102, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite, for man has closed himself up till he sees all things through a narrow chink of his cavern. This perhaps gets to the heart of Blake's mission in this work. To, to blow open the doors of perception, to enable people to move beyond the, the limits of their five senses 
to use their imagination to break free from that and to see things as they really are, at least as they really seem to, to the mystical visionary uh, image uh, that, that Blake sees. As you're reading Blake, um, it can be very difficult, but that's okay. Do your best in trying to look for patterns, look for, for themes, uh, for trying um, to recognize the complexities of it, uh, and not uh, trying to oversimplify his, his, his style. He is certainly the easiest, or one of the easiest poets to misread, um, but with these guidelines you, you should get at least a better appreciation and better sense of what he's doing. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you have to write about him in your blogs, and we'll talk more next time about uh, William Wordsworth. Thank you. Goodbye.